morning. Would you take God's word, turn to 1 Peter. For those that are visiting this morning, we're in a series looking at the gospel, not the gospel, but the book of Peter. And Peter really is writing to those that have been dispersed and are going to be facing various forms of persecution in the very near future. As we begin, I, I want to talk about mosaic thinking versus linear thinking for a moment. In America, we are very linear. A, B, C, D. One plus one equals two. And, and so we follow this kind of chronological line that we enjoy that kind of thinking. So often in Middle East culture, and, and Peter's a good example of this, is he's what's called a mosaic thinker. Think of a painting or think of a puzzle. That there's ideas everywhere, and when you put all the ideas together, it forms a particular picture. So often when we read this, we try to put it into a linear kind of thinking, and it just doesn't fit. And we're going to see that this morning because Peter is talking about what it means to be a healthy follower of Jesus. And he's painting this picture of circumstances, of persecution. He's talking about new birth, okay? Now, I got a picture up here. Do we have it? There we go. I get bragging rights on that. That's Mercedes uh, Jane Mellon or Mercy or MJ. That's a picture of new birth. Easy to love, isn't it? But you know what happens in the church? People come into new birth, and all of a sudden we sit there. I mean, what would happen if Chris and Bree would say, Mercedes, why can't you drive a car today? You know, it's time to go out and get a job. Come on, earn your own. No, new birth means new birth. And small babies are helpless. Now, last week we had five guys except Christ. They are new birthers. And what do you think they need? They need people to come alongside as a parent comes alongside of a child. I know a lot of people saying, well, there's nothing for me to do. Well, right there's five things that you can do. We need people to come alongside and get rid of the expectations, understand that they need to grow up in Christ, but they need people to walk with them. Just because they have adult-sized bodies, we expect adult-sized following. Now, the reason I say this is because we know that life gets tough. And when life gets tough, you need the body of Christ with each other, walking with each other, being there for each other. And Peter's been saying things like this. You have to think correctly about God. And you have to think correctly about you. And you have to understand this gospel, this born again, this new birth, what it means. Because once you get that in place, and once you have people walking with you in that journey, it brings you to an alive hope, a deep joy. And if you're going to face life, and life will be very difficult, it is absolutely critical that you have Christ there, and you have Christ's followers there. Now, this morning, we're going to take a very large, a very large picture of Bible and history. The witnesses that Peter talked about are the prophets of old. They are the scribes. They are the teachers. 
They're the ones that from Genesis to Revelation, now some are future, but from Genesis, what we call the Old Testament, up to the present time, they wrote about this gospel. They wrote about salvation. They studied it. They wrote about, like Isaiah, the suffering Messiah and the glory that would follow. But like most of us, because we're in a human finite context, when this Messiah shows up, there's this massive disconnect. You see, Jesus, even though the Jewish teachers had accurate information, it was the wrong application. And so they were waiting for someone to show up and conquer an oppressive Roman government. They were looking at a physical kingdom. They were looking at a political kingdom. It's kind of like many people today say the 2016 election, they're waiting for their Messiah to show up. That's not why he died, rose again, and appeared to them. In fact, he gave them their mission, but they were so stuck in this mindset. Listen to what it says in Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, this is after they saw the resurrection. This is after the death, after all the explanations, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were so locked into that application, they could not see the broader mission and vision, even though they could detail it in their minds and they could quote the scripture, they could quote the prophets. They somehow just couldn't seem to think outside of their own circles. Now, here's the important lesson we learned from that. If you go to the Bible to prove something, you will. I'm going to say that again. If you go to the Bible to prove something, you will. One can make the Bible say anything it wants. Remember the abortion doctor, Kermit Gosnell, the infamous ex-abortion doctor in Philly that did horrible things? Well, in an interview for an upcoming movie, and I have no idea why they're making a movie about this guy. In this interview, he uses the Bible to affirm his innocence. Since in prison, and this is what's not been coming out, he claims to be a Christian. But since he's been in prison, he's been reading from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over and over again. And here's what he says. Genesis 2, verse 7, where it says God breathed life into Adam. He is convinced that life does not begin until the first breath. Therefore, he has done nothing wrong. This kind of theology has been described as find Waldo hermeneutic. Do you know what finding Waldo is? I'm going to educate some younger people. Here's a picture of finding Waldo. I think we have it up there. Yes? No? No PowerPoint? It's my first slide. Okay, where is Waldo? Uh, if you've ever seen these things, we used to see them in dentist office where there's two pages, just a bunch of little people, and you had to sit there and find Waldo in the midst of that. That's what a lot of people do with theology. They have this preconceived idea that they're absolutely convinced they're right, and so they go to Scripture to prove what they already believe. Now, if you go to the Bible to listen to the counsel of God, he will surprise you. He will shock you. He will rock your world. 
Do you basically believe the Bible is about him or you? Now, answer that question. When you read Scripture, do you believe the Bible is about him or you? That will determine in many ways how you live out being a follower of Jesus. Now, let me ask a more practical way of asking the same question. All this stuff we call church. Is it about you or is it about him? When you leave the worship service, do you evaluate saying to God, okay, did I honor you with my worship? Did I bring you glory? Or is it about you? When you go to your job, is everything that happens about you and what's fair and unfair? Or at the end of the day, you say, Lord, in all my circumstances, did I bring you glory? If you go to school, the end of the day is it about you and everything you liked and didn't like or was it hey god did i bring you glory in my class on the athletic field you know scripture says that whatever you do you do all for what the glory of god so let's turn to first peter chapter 1 verses 9 through 12 this is where we're at this morning first peter 1 verses 9 through 12 Peter writes these words, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, he's talking about receiving, he's talking about outcome. This is what we call the gospel, okay? Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So what he's talking about here is way back, long time ago, all the prophets, everybody we talked about talked about Jesus. Everything they wrote talked about Jesus. Someday the glory that he would bring to his father by coming to earth, by dying on a cross, by rising again, and then the future glory that he'll bring to this world at his second coming. That's subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. In other words, they weren't going to get to see it. But we do. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, if you don't believe in angels, you've got a rough time with this passage. Because <laughs> he says, not only were the prophets there, you had these angels that knew what was going to be birthed, this new birth. And they long to see this. And what Peter does here is he paints a picture of the gospel. Now, the main point is this. If you get nothing else, you can write this down. And this is the main point. We should be amazed at the greatness of our salvation. This thing that we call the gospel, the gospel, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be utterly amazed at the greatness of what Christ has provided. If not, we've got to ask ourselves why. But let me talk about five things about the gospel that Peter talks about here. The first, he says, the gospel is historical. The prophets searched and inquired. It was predicted by Christ himself, both past, and what's interesting about this historical piece is, it's both present and future. And what makes this unique is that most historical news is a report about something you can do nothing about. 
It's an event in time and space. It's complete. Everything was done, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change that. This history is about the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ that is active, alive, and future, just not past. He has given us everything necessary. And the good news is not how to. It is finished, Christ said. The good news is about a relationship that we can have in Christ Jesus that he transforms and he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves and that is change our sin nature. That's when history becomes alive. Last week we talked about that we have to believe Jesus Christ and we have to love him. But let me give this analogy about what we're talking about. Every one of us were born into sin. We're serving a life prison sentence. And all of us have absolutely no hope for escape or release. One day, along comes the warden, opens your cell door and says, you are free. I got good news. Somebody else has paid your ransom. They've paid your unpayable debts. You no longer have to stay in prison. And he leaves And there's the door unlocked. We got two choices and only two choices. One is we can stay. Even though the door's unlocked, we say to ourselves, well, you know, this prison's kind of familiar. It's comfortable. Got a roof over my head, three meals a day. Got friends either side of me. And then you might start even this little conspiracy theory and say, well, you know what? He's setting me up. If I go out that unlocked door and if I go outside the building, I'm going to be shot on the spot. So your one option, even though you have the possibility of being free, is to stay. The other is to get up and walk out. And by faith, you believe that someone has paid your debts and you walk out into a new world of possibility and hope and mess. So ask yourself, where are you this morning? And I know far too many people who claim they believe the message of Christ. They've prayed a prayer. They've done all those things that they say brings them into an audience of heaven, but they've never gotten up and walked out of their prison cell. They just live there because that's comfortable. Here's the second thing about the gospel. It's doxological. Now, I realize that's a fancy word. Let me explain what it means. Remember the phrase, subsequent glories that we read about? Doxa is glory. So what it means is the good news brings glory to God. Now, the purpose of the gospel is not merely forgiveness. It's to bring glorious worship to God. And worship is something we do 24-7. The worship sometimes translated how we serve. So understand that This good news is just not a get-out-of-jail-free card that says, okay, I'm forgiven, nothing. No. Good news brings you into a life that brings glory, that brings light to the darkness that we experience. But here's our problem. We do believe that Jesus died, rose again, but we're not convinced of the magnitude of our debts. See, we think our prison term was maybe a five-year. And we're going to get off in three with good behavior. 
And when we fail to see the magnitude of our debt, we fail to see the magnitude of our provision. If we really don't think that we were that bad of a sinner, then we really didn't need that much grace. That's the first part of what's wrong. Here's the second. While we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do not believe that Jesus lived a life that we should live. Now, I know some of you are sitting there saying, what? Are you kidding? Let me say it again and let me explain. While we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do not believe that Jesus lived a life that we should live. Here's what we do. Remember how you go to Scripture and you prove what you want? This is what we do with this statement. We take the reality that Jesus died and paid for our debt so we don't have to, which is true. But then we move that over into our lives. And so we say things like this, well, Jesus suffered, so I don't have to. And that contradicts what Jesus said, contradicts what Peter's saying. Jesus paid it all so I can keep whatever I want. Now, how many times do we say it's all God's? but we live like it's all ours. Talking about practical theology here. Jesus came to serve, but I can do whatever I want. I don't have to serve. Now, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. I just want you to listen to it. To me, it's one one of those passages. In fact, there's a certain section of this passage they used to sing as a hymn. But listen to these words and ask yourself if practically this is where you live. Paul writes these words in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we know there is, and he's really saying, okay, if there is, yes, we know there is. We have all those things in Christ. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And you hear me talk about unity in the midst of diversity all the time. The body of Christ is very diverse in personality, likes, dislikes, gifts, talents, passions, but the Spirit brings this unity together that together we can do things that we cannot do alone. We reduce same mind down to sameness. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And that all sounds nice. We say, yes, 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 we agree. But now, listen to what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now think about how many times a day we do that. That we tend to elevate others beyond ourselves. Let each of you not look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. But have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're to think and live and be like Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he let go of his rights. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men. That means he became one of those little babies. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And he did all that for us. There was not a single benefit that he received from that. He had no personal debt. Therefore, God has highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You understand that's just a matter of time. 
It happens now or it happens later. But all eternity hinges upon when we make that confession. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We always ask, why does he put that there? You know why? Because <laughs> we know how to grumble well. Just read the Old Testament when they were talking about the forerunning of Christ. Or disputing. See that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I mean, he admits we live in a dark world among whom you shine as lights in the world. And the lights that we're talking about here is the glory. It's the doxology, the doxa. The gospel is a light in the midst of a shine of a world that desperately needs to see the light of Christ. Here's the third. Peter tells us the gospel is Christocentric. That's a fancy word meaning that Christ is at the center. That's what we're being told. And if you study the Old Testament with the light of it pointing to Christ, it's fascinating how many times we see this over and over and over again. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a good book called Preaching Christ in the Old Testament where he takes passage after passage about this. Wrote to Emmaus, after he died, rose again, he gathers with these people walking and he starts talking. And they look at him and say, are you the only one that doesn't know what's been happening? And so they give their version of the accounts. Remember, they went to the scripture proving what they thought happened. At the very end, it says, it was our hope that he would redeem Israel. That's their version of winning the 2016 election. Now, people are saying, they're seeing angels. Some people say they saw Christ. And what I find interesting is he's just standing there listening. I imagine he has a smile on his face. And he doesn't say, well, why don't you recognize me? But here's what he says. Oh, foolish ones, and slow heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter to his glory? In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I mean, there he goes. He was back to the Old Testament and started saying, listen, here, 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 here. Now, I showed this video uh, last Easter, but it's worth seeing again. Tim Keller does an excellent job talking about Christ being this whole forerunner and how there's this evidence after evidence after evidence. Let's just watch this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me. 
because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Kenny has the right idea. You can applaud that kind of stuff. It's about who he is. And here's what Peter says. When Jesus shows up, there's hope. Now, personally, I can't understand why Christians today want to discount the Old Testament when everything points to Christ. There's this whole rise, and I'll use kind of a, a term that maybe some of you aren't familiar with, but it's, it's old. It's called neo-orthodoxy. They call it progressive revelation. that says, well, God was this way in the Old Testament, and Christ was this way in the New Testament, and we discount and disregard everything in the Old Testament. It's very dangerous, especially when Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do you not think that I've come to abolish, do you, do you not think that I've come to abolish the lower prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And of course, the point of the Old Testament is this, we can't be good enough to get into heaven. That's the good news. That Jesus Christ supplied that way. Fourth, Peter says the gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. It's historical, it's doxological, it's Christocentric, and it's personal. It's interesting that Peter relates everything to who? To us. The prophets and the angels, they portrayed all this stuff, the witnesses that went on before us. It wasn't for them, but it was for us. There's not a single person here, and this is what Peter's saying, there's not a single person here that is not out of the reach of God through Christ. Now let's talk about easy believism for a second. Let me explain what that is. It's where we substitute religion for Christ. Good example is the Pharisees. They were moralistic, they were legalistic, and they were hostile. They did violence to people who did not believe like they believed. That's where you can tell there's religion over Christ. Now, understand this. Scripture defines us how, by what animal are we called? Sheep. And the number one thing you need to do about sheep are they're stupid. Now, if you want proof 
go Google this. And I heard about this this week, and I said, I got to find out this is true. And it is true. Story came out of Turkey. They still have sheep herders there. And understand this, and this is what we believe. We believe somehow if we get a large group of sheep together, that somehow there is, what's the word, safety in numbers. Or if I got a large group of people that believe like I believe, then I must be right. It goes to Scripture to prove that we want it this way, and we just find a bunch of other sheep that believe like us. That's not smart. But here's what these sheep did in Turkey. A herd of 1,500 sheep. They're up in this mountain. One sheep turns, decides to walk off the edge of the cliff to his death. One by one, the other 1,499 followed. They turned, they looked, and they went, whew, right over the cliff. Now, the only redeeming part of the story is they only lost 450 sheep because as they begin to pile up at the bottom, the other sheep had a soft landing. How tragic is that? See, easy, easy believism is where we go to Scripture to prove what we want, and it's just following the crowd. And sometimes we walk away, not because we were intelligent, just because we were number, what, 451 in line of the 1,500. Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this about the church in his day. Easy believism is the reason Nazism came into power. When we understand that the gospel is historical, doxological, Christocentric, and it's personal, it's for us, and we sit in our jail cells, the kind of evil that is exhibited in that political system we call Nazism will prevail. Fifth, the gospel is cultural. By that, I simply mean the church is a culture. And when you think about cultures, it demands something from us. Another way of saying this is it's impossible to encounter Christ and not change. You can have information about Christ, and you can believe information about Christ. But until you personalize it, until you do it for the glory, until you make Christ center, until you make it personal, You'll just sit in your jail cell. And it's why there's a lot of people sitting in their jail cells because they have a relationship that's about Christ, not with Christ. There's a big difference. Our culture is driven by unity, which has incredible diversity. It's driven because it has one head, Jesus Christ, not many heads. It's driven because there's only one church, not many churches. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet is, is working with a people that would not listen to what God had to say, so they're in captivity in Babylon. And they had several choices, and let me read this for a second. They had several choices. One was stay outside and remain pure. That's what some people wanted to do. Of course, the Babylonians wanted them to come inside and be assimilated and lose their identity. It's why when you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they got Babylonian names because they want to erase all their identity. But God tells Jeremiah for them to do the hardest thing possible. And let me read this and then tell you what that is. 
In verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, and Peter's writing to exiles, whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may be bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Here's what God tells Jeremiah to do and it's the hardest thing possible. He says, I don't want you to stay outside and be different. And I don't want you to go inside and be like them. I want you to go inside and be very different. See, that's the calling that Peter, because Peter's going to talk about this exile language. We're going to get into this as we look at this. And this is what Peter is really calling the church. And if we understand what the gospel is and who the gospel is and our relationship with that gospel, it will help us to seek the welfare of the city. And there we will find our own welfare. It will help us to go inside and become very different. It will help us to understand phrases like, I've sent you into exile and prayed to the Lord on its behalf. If you feel like you're exiles in America, God sent you here. You need to pray and you need to live like Christ. See, a godly life of a Christ follower is the most powerful apologetic. People are looking for stories, just not information. We live in an information age, and people pick and choose. What they're looking for is a story in a person's life. Now, what all this means is that the gospel is massively transformational and wonderful, and we should never, never, never escape the centrality of Christ. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Nothing more. Think about this illustration. I have a lot of books in my office. I don't know how many books you have. I don't know what you read. But there's an avalanche of books that have the Christian label. How many of those books focus on the cross? I'm not saying the other ones aren't valuable. But we have books about counseling, about how to be the church, about self-help, which I think is a contradiction of terms. You can't have a self-help Christian book. That's just a personal pet peeve. We got Christian fiction. But how many times do we sit and read a story or a book about Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ? Peter's showing us this morning that we should, be, that we should feel blessed and grateful. Because we get to see what the Old Testament prophets and angels long to see. They long to see what we get to experience now. And he tells us that the gospel is historical, it is doxological, Christocentric, personal, and cultural. It's time to let Jesus show up in his church. Amen? I'm going to ask the, the band to come up. We're going to sing a closing song as they do. I'm going to pray with you. Father God, we get so much information. Help us to go to your word to hear you speak to us and not go to your word to prove what we want to prove. Help us to see everything that you're involved with, to see your glory, 
to see you working in incredible ways rather than tear down different just because it's not the way we would do it. Ways that you are infiltrating the darkness. Help us to be light, which means we have to live according to the Spirit. Help us to keep you at the center and realize that from Genesis to Revelation, it's the same book, it's the same story. It's about you coming, redeeming your people. And again, you will set your kingdom up someday. And we're either part of that or we're not part of it. Help us to walk out of ourselves and walk into a scary, frightful, hopeful, glorious world and allow you to shine your glory in everything that we say and do. In your name we pray. Amen.